0: I'm really stepping way, way, way out of my comfort zone uh, with the book of Revelation. And so uh, just the last couple of months, I've felt really drawn to the book, and it's one of those books that um, there's a lot of symbolism in it, there's a, there's a lot of prophecy in it, right? Things that are, that are going to happen. Um, there's a lot of, just just to be honest with you, things that I read and I don't understand. And, uh, and so we're gonna do our best to, ch- to journey through this book. And, and last week we, we stayed in chapter one. And so we kind of covered the, the importance of vision. We looked at the, right in chapter one, there's this incredible vision that um, the writer is given. John is given of Jesus. And so this whole book, most, you know, this book is given from, from Jesus through a messenger. And today we're gonna pick right up where we left off at the end of chapter one. And we're gonna look at chapter two and chapter three. And so a few things before we jump into that that I want you to uh, to take notice of. If you have one of those red letter Bibles, those are, you know, the, where the, the, the words of Jesus are in red. Pretty cool. Um, some Bibles do that. Some Bibles don't. You're going to notice all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 are in red. And so these are words directly from Jesus. And, and these were given to seven churches that existed in, when this book was written around 90 AD and so I'm going to just read one verse to you um, one or two verses here revelation chapter one let's do verse 19 and 20 it says write therefore what you have seen what is now and what will take place later past present and future the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand this is the vision that we looked at last week and of the seven golden lampstands is this the seven stars are the angels of seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so what is he saying? What does that mean? Uh, I just, just to kind of give you, just historically, he was writing literally to seven churches that now would be in what's known as modern-day Turkey. I want to put them up on the screen so that you can see exactly where this was and and so John is writing this from the island of Patmos that you can see kind of in the middle of that picture and that little black dot about a 21 square mile circumference island small island he was there imprisoned for being a a Christian for for um, naming the name of Christ he was exiled to that island and he's receiving this vision and I want you to see kind of these seven churches and how they're how that's that's a main trade route of that day So that was a very busy, you know, very busy section of the country during that time. And what's interesting to me is what we're going to look at today is chapter 2 and 3. And so every church, those red dots represent a church. Every church, Jesus had three things to say to them. He didn't say the same thing, but they all, they fell in three categories. He had a commendation, which was like a good job, attaboy. He had a correction hey, this needs to be improved. And then he had a counsel on how they could improve it. So it's like the sandwich model, right? You've heard of that when you, have a, when you need to have a hard conversation. Y'all haven't heard of that? You sandwich it in there, right? The buns are encouragement. So you say something really positive in the middle is the meat, and that's what you really need to say. And then, you, and then you, you know, you put another slice of bread on the end. You say something positive on the end. So you, you put what you really need to say in the middle and you sandwich it between two encouraging things, right? Well, that's what he does for these seven churches. And, and they're in order. I want you to see this. So the first church that he, talk, he starts with is Ephesus, which is number one there. And then he works clockwise all the way around to Laodicea. And, and so this letter that we're about to look at these seven churches, they got seven different commendations and corrections and councils. So every church would have seen everyone's business so to speak so imagine if you took a test in class and when the test was over like they passed around the results of everyone's tests all the way through the room so you got to see how everybody was doing well that's basically what happened here so this was a letter and so paul i'm sorry john the revelator would write the letter and he would send it to the first church and then the church would read the letter aloud and then they would send it to the next church And so that's the order that we see in these seven churches. And and, and so we can take these these seven letters and we can say, well, these letters were meant for churches that existed 2,000 years ago. And I I think you're right. There's details in these letters, in these corrections. And history tells us exactly what was going on in these churches. And so these were things that were happening within the church. Uh, They were all being tested somehow. Either if it was through suffering or through uh, persecution or if it was through just something on the inside. They had, they had um, started liking money a little too much. And, they and you know, th- there's all these different things that they were being tested in. And so we can say, well, that was for them in the past and maybe that doesn't deal with us. But I think you're right, and but there's another side to it. We could also say, well, these seven churches and these seven corrections, well, these, these are all prophetic things, right? So that means that they're going to happen in the future. So these seven letters and these seven corrections that we're going to look at, these tests, are things that are going to be relevant to the church for another hundred years, another thousand years, or that they're in the future. But the way I want to try to to look at it this morning as we approach it is that how do we take these these seven letters, right, these seven words to these seven churches and say, okay, how does this affect me right now presently? Because I, I wanna say that everything that these churches were facing, we're gonna face at some point in our life. And yes, they did face it you know, 2,000 years ago. And yes, these letters were written to, you know, the angels of the churches, I believe that those were the pastors of the churches. If you look at that word angel, it's messenger, and it's, it's also referred to as, uh, in, in, again in the New Testament, as, as the messenger or the angel. So I don't, I don't know if it was a literal angel, but I want to say it was the leader or the pastor of the church at the time. and that's what this letter was addressed to. And he would he would take the letter and read it to the church and and so they would make the changes they need to make. And so as we jump into this, the first thing I, I just I want you to try to do is say, okay, how does this affect me right now presently? Because every 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 letter to each church has a test and it has a truth. And I'm finding in life that, what is not tested cannot be trusted that's with anything a faith that is not tested cannot be trusted a car (laughs) that is not tested right that's why when you go to buy a new car what do you want to do you're going to test drive that thing, right? Especially if it's on Craigslist. and You meet somebody in a Walmart parking lot. You're not just going to give them money and drive off, right? I mean, unless you just really, really have a lot of faith. I don't know. But you're going to test it. You're going to take it to a mechanic. You're going to say, hey, do a 12-point inspection on this bad boy. I don't trust this person, right? Make sure, you know, I want to make sure this thing's going to run, the brakes work. You, anything that is not tested cannot be trusted. And the more that God entrusts into your life, the more he's going to test you. I just the more we pray for God's blessing the more we pray for God to use us it's typically going to come on the heels of some kind of test. And these seven churches all have one thing in common they were all being tested. They were going through some kind of either exterior temptation or interior struggle within the church that was testing them. But what I love about God is he never wastes a test. I don't like taking tests. I'm not a big test taker. Some people love taking tests. I pray for y'all. No, I'm just kidding. But, but I, I just never was really good at that. I didn't like it. But what I'm seeing now in life is that it's is God will lead us through a series of tests. And, and, and if we don't learn the test at one job, we'll quit that job and we'll go find it that God puts it right in our lap again at another job, at another organization, and we're facing the same tests. So life's full of tests. And, and, I, and I'm positive about this that as God begins to grow us and as God begins to work in our life, He's, He's, He's going to begin to test us. And so I want you to kind of see it in, in, that, in that mentality that there's these tests that the church are going, that the churches were going through, but then there was these truths that there was, these, there was a lot of good that was coming out of these tests. And so the first church is the Church of Ephesus. I'm going to read the, your, their test to you and, and then we're going to look at the truth. Revelation 2, verse 4 and 5, it says, here's the the correction to the church at Ephesus. I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider this. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. So there's the correction and I think that what we can draw out of this is that have you, how many of you ever felt like that your relationship with God has drifted before, right? Like you start really well and you're on fire. If, you can, if you're not a Christian, and, but if you are a Christian and you can probably remember the moment that you became a Christian and you, were just want, you wanted to be in the church every day that the doors were open, right? I, I mean, if they're, and whatever they needed done, you'd do it. I mean, you were just there all the time, you showed up early, you stayed late, right? I mean, you were just excited and ecstatic to be at church, to be serving God, praying, read. I mean, just couldn't wait to read the Bible, and then it's kind of like the honeymoon phase, right? And then it just starts to drift. <laughs> and it's, I think it's easy to fall in love, the hard part is staying in love, Right? And so we make these commitments, and what this church had done is they started off really well, but they started to drift. And I think what what I'm finding and and what I I really believe that God wants in our life is he doesn't want a law-based relationship. He he, he wants a love-based relationship. And you think about the people that you love and the people that you interact with, your spouse. You want them to love you because they really love you, right? Right? You don't want them to be faithful because it's it's the law right you don't want to be faithful because they're afraid of the consequences or what you might do to them and what this church had began to do is they had all the ritual but they lacked the relationship they were going through the motions they were checking the boxes they were doing all the right stuff but jesus calls them out he says hey i see your works i see what you're doing on the exterior but something's wrong in here. You've you've left your first love. And he gives gives him kind of the prescription. He says, go back and do what you did at the beginning. And I love that. Because if you've been married in here very long or you're dating and you're going on year one or year two, you know that love tends to drift. You know that love, if you don't put wood on the fire, it goes out, come on somebody. And he says, whatever you did to start the relationship, go back and do those things again. Like spending time together and just being around each other. And like, you know, when Caitlin and I were dating, I would just call her. I had nothing to say. I'd just listen to her breathe on the phone. Hey, what you doing? Nothing. What you doing? Nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't like a, it wasn't something I had to do. I got to do it. I wanted to do it. I enjoyed it. And I think the truth that we can pull out of this is that relationship is more important than ritual. That God wants a love-based relationship, not law. And that it is possible to go through all the motions. It is possible to have everything right on the exterior and do all the right things, but right here be missing it. That was that correction that came to the church of Ephesus. The second church, the church of Smyrna, Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer I tell you, the devil's going to put some of you in prison to test you. And you're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. So, this church, Jesus is preparing them for what was about to happen. He says, persecution is coming, suffering is coming. And maybe you're not like this, but I'm like this. <laughs> when I get put, put in a place where I'm suffering or there's pain or I don't like it, I tend to pray my way out of those situations, right? That's me. But I think there's another side to this. Jesus is saying, hey, the suffering that you're going to endure, there's good that will come out of it. And I'm finding in life that I know that suffering is not something that anybody prays for. Nobody wants to be persecuted. Nobody wants to go through suffering. Nobody wants to go through hard times. But it's in those seasons of our life where our faith really thrives. It's in those seasons when the the pressure cooker is turned up all the way, where the heat is really on. And and so I want to give you what's literally happening in the church when when this was written. According to history, the pastor was a guy named Polycarp. You ever heard of him, Polycarp? That's an interesting name. I don't know if I'd name my son Polycarp. But uh, he was the pastor of this church when this book was written to Smyrna. And so Polycarp led the church for, for a few decades. And then finally Caesar put out a decree and said, all right, all the Christians need to die heavy persecution and you can read about it in history they were pulling them out in the streets they were taking them into like kind of a gladiator type situation they'd put them into the middle of a coliseum release lions on them it was wild like we don't have anything like that going on right now like but but that was happening around 110 120 ad and so polycarp was taken from his home he was pulled to the middle of the coliseum imagine that pulled to the middle of the Civic Center or the Wahoo Stadium or a football stadium and told to renounce Christ or he would be killed. He was 86 years old when this happened. And history tells us this was his response. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they brought out a stake and in that time they would actually they would nail him to a stake and they would set him on fire. I know this is crazy, y'all, but this is history tells us this happened over and over. And he said, "I don't need the nails. My faith will hold me on the stake." So he sat and he had it on this stake and they lit him on fire, and this is you can look this up, and history says that the Colosseum was not filled with the smell of burning flesh, but the smell of frankincense. And he sat there for, for, for several minutes and was not burned at all, alive. And so they sent out someone to stab him in the side to make sure that he died, but he went all the way to the point of death. Again, literally, Jesus let them know, hey, your, your pastor is about to be taken out. But he did it. Now, I know we're not suffering that right now. Nobody's suffering that kind of persecution. You might get made fun of at, at work or at school for being a Christian. I mean, you may have some of that going on, but nobody's threatening your life in this country. Nobody's threatening to harm you. But what is, what is our suffering? What do we walk through? Well, I think Jesus said it the best. He said, it, nobody can be my disciple unless they're willing to take up their cross and follow me. Well, what's your cross? Everybody has one. We can't carry Jesus' cross. That was his cross. Well, what's your cross? What makes you bleed? What hurts you? What's the thorn in your flesh that you wish that you could get rid of it, but it's still there? And so what we're seeing, and and this is not popular preaching, y'all. That's why it's so quiet. Nobody likes to talk about suffering. But the truth in this is that suffering is the soil where greatness grows. And all the people in our, if you study and you look at the people that have done great things for God in this life and, 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 and in past, they all had to go through suffering. They all had to go through loss. They all had to face things that they didn't want to face. They had to give up jobs. They had to give up homes. Some had to give up houses and careers. And, 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 but, but again, I don't want you to look at suffering as a bad thing. Look at suffering as a good thing. James flipped it when he says, hey, count it all joy, brothers and sisters. James 1, when you fall into divers temptations, when, when, you, when you find yourself in a place where you're, where you're suffering, he said, because God is going to do something great on the other side of that. Amen? All right, so let's look at this the message to the Pergamos, Revelation 2, verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name and you did not renounce your faith. Not even in the days where my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Again, persecution. What is this test? This is a test of faith. That they were coming to these churches and they were trying to get these pastors and the leaders of these churches to renounce Christ. They were threatened by Christianity. They were threatened by the movement. And, and, and so he's encouraging them. He's, he's giving them this counsel. Hey, keep the faith. Don't let the outside persecution uh, uh, you know, have you, keep you from giving in, but keep the faith. And I think if we can put it in practical terms, some of the greatest blessings in your life will be on the other side of not giving up. Some of the greatest blessings in your life, I'm going to say it again. We'll be on the other side of not giving up. Not giving up on a marriage. Not giving up on a career. Not giving up on a job. Not giving up on a relationship. Not giving up on the church your faith. And whether we realize it or not, there is an unseen battle happening. There is. That wants to try to take the seed of faith from our life. That wants to try to, to get us to doubt God and, and doubt who He is. But this, this message came as an encouragement. It came right in the moment where they needed it basically saying you know life as a christian is going to be hard work but keep the faith Paul who i think was probably he was a general of the faith he wrote a third, a third of the new testament we can draw so much from his writings this was some of his last words and he had lost a lot of things in his life he'd lost friends he'd lost family he lost his eyesight at one point the history tells he lost a lot in his life but this is what he said in second timothy chapter 4 verse 7 I've, I've fought the good fight i've kept the faith right i've finished my race i've i've kept my faith i've lost a lot of things but i've kept my faith and i think when it comes when we're in situations like this and i know not everybody's going through suffering or persecution or you're in a you're in a trial right now. But when you find yourself in one, you can't trust your feelings. Your, your feelings will lie to you. Your feelings will tell you to give up. Your feelings will tell you to avoid pain. Your feelings will tell you to, you know, just, just, just don't do that. Just, just, you know, get... But I think the truth that we can draw out of this from this church is that we want to let our faith override our feelings. That we want to put stock in our faith not our feelings that if we give up a lot of things we can give up and lose a lot of stuff in this life but the one thing we don't want to lose is our faith right jesus was talking to peter said hey peter guess what satan's got a bullseye on your head he desires you he wants you and he wants to sift you like wheat but i've prayed for you not that you wouldn't be tried but that your faith would not fail And so we can't trust our feelings, and a lot of times our feelings will be the exact opposite of our faith. Our feelings will tell us to give up and run, and our faith is saying, just double down and hold on. And that's where this church was. So we want to let our faith, our faith override our feelings. All right, next church, the message to Thyatira. Say that three times. (laughs) I had to write that out in like, 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 you know, syllables so I didn't butcher it. Uh, Thyatira. I know your deeds. Your love and faith. You're doing good there. Your servants, perseverance. You're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching... She misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into idols. All right, so what, is that even, what does that mean? Who is Jezebel? What's going on? I think this test here is a test of obedience. And I wish I had some time to go into the spirit of Jezebel and what, who Jezebel was. And, and, and so if, if you want to do you know, more research on that, you can find a lot of information. But just a few things that Jezebel... Done according to the Old Testament in First Kings, her husband was King Ahab, and so she kind of took over the throne. And I think when it comes to this this particular church and this particular diagnosis, I'm finding in my life that 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 Jezebel oftentimes will attack people in leadership. So she attached herself to Ahab. He was the king. He was the top, and what she wanted was control. She didn't like what Ahab was doing. She didn't like the way that Ahab was leading. And so she made her way into his life. And these are just a few things that she was able to accomplish. Uh, she worshiped foreign idols, reintroduced them to Israel. She slaughtered the, um, a lot of the prophets of, of, of Israel, which is wild to think about. Um, wrongfully killed a guy, stole. She just thought everything was hers and she wanted it and she couldn't get it. She'd just kill somebody and take it. So, what does that even mean? I, it's hard I mean again I'm telling y'all I'm I I don't have a, I don't have all this figured out. But I think that the devil one of his tricks is he's always going to try to get us to compromise our convictions. And I think the two big things that when you see the the Jezebel spirit working in 1st Kings and in this church it was immorality, sexual immorality, and idolatry. And you look across the last 100 years of what has taken out a lot of leaders to be real with you look at the last like month (laughs) and what has taken out some some you know pastors that i really respect and loved and looked up to it's been immorality sexual immorality and it's been they've just allowed things into their life that shouldn't be there so this was a message to leaders this was a message to the leaders of the church this was a warning that the enemy, he will, he will always sell you like a counterfeit. And, he, and, and I've heard it temptation said that it's like this. It's a, it's a sparkling bait hiding a deadly hook. That if you had this, you'd be happy. I know you're not happy in this. I know you're not happy in, in what you're doing right now. But come over here and maybe this will do it for you. And so they gave in to it. They were tolerating things they shouldn't have tolerated. They were allowing things they shouldn't have allowed so what is the truth that we can pull out of this? I think a lot of times the number one tactic the enemy uses to get people to fall and just fall on their sword and do very dumb stuff is that they, there's this illusion that they're missing out on something. Right? The grass is greener over there. I'll be happy if I'm with that person or this, or this person or if I leave this or if I had that. Right? The first, the first mention of temptation Eve seen it. It was pleasant to the eye. She 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 wanted it. And Adam, the same thing. Is that it's so important right now, I think, to have people in your life, number one, that can hold you accountable. Come on somebody. Right, Especially if you're in a, a leadership position and, you, and, and, and you're like the top of the totem pole and you're not accountable to anyone and so, so nobody can really speak into your life and, and that's a really dangerous place to be outside of accountability. But I think the second thing is this, is that the devil always wants to sell us a, a counterfeit and make us believe that, that the grass is really greener on the other side and we'd be happier if we just left what we have for something else. But every person that's done that will tell you that the grass is greener because it's over a septic tank. And it's a lie. It's not true. Or I've heard this. Well, God just wants me to be happy. And this makes me happy. Well, I think that's partially true. I I think that holiness is more important to God than our happiness. And I think the truth that we can pull out of this is a holy life leads to a happy life. And if we just chase what's going to make us happy our whole life, we will be very miserable. Because a lot of times what makes us happy in the moment is not good for us. Like my, my son, he's five, about to be six. What makes him happy is, is sugar. Right? Like, like, a, like a waffle cone filled with marshmallows with chocolate syrup on it. That's what he wants for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's good. It tastes good. It feels good. It makes me happy. Now, if I just gave him that all the time, Right? Come on. So, so God wants you holy and whole. And when we think about holiness, we can think about, well, it's a bunch of thou shalt nots and all that. Well, no, no, no. Holiness, to, that word holy means to be set apart. It means I'm, I am more concerned about what God has called me to do and bringing him glory. I'm not even going to entertain this thing. Right? Like I, I don't I don't want to do anything that's going to circumvent what God is doing in my life or in my marriage or in my church or in the company that I lead. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stick with God. Come on, somebody. And sometimes I think we just need a reminder of that. Sometimes we need to be encouraged by that. And so it's a it's a test of obedience. All right, mess, message to Sardis. Let's read this and I'm I'm hurrying. The angel of the church in Sardis, write these words. Of him who holds the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars, I know your deeds. You've got a reputation of being alive. That word means active, full of vigor, or efficient. So you're doing a lot of stuff, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now, so this church was really active and was one of the most active churches and they were doing a bunch of stuff. But what they weren't doing was really maintaining what was important, and that was their relationship with God. So they were doing all the stuff, but they had missed what was really critically important. And I think that this is something that we can apply to our lives, because I've never met anyone that, you know, some folks have more time than others, but most people I sit down with are just like uber busy, like all the time. And, and as, as, I think as we get older and we start having kids and the family grows and you've got more people that, are, that, you're, that you're leading and more people that, that are looking to you for leadership, there's just always something going on. And I don't know if you've heard of this principle. It's called the Parkinson's principle. And it basically says this, that, that work will fill up the amount of time that you allow it anybody here that owns a business knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. You could be working right now, right? I mean, there's something right now that needs to be done, and you're probably thinking about it. There's somebody that probably didn't do what you asked them to do. And and so it's it's just busyness. And I'm finding that hurry will hurt you. And that just because you're busy doesn't mean that it's good. And that's what was happening in this church. They were doing a lot. They had all kinds of programs. They had all kind of community outreach. They had all kinds of civic things going on, and they had all this stuff on the exterior, but on the inside, they there was something missing. And so, the truth I think we can draw out of this is beware of the bareness of a busy life, because busy doesn't equal spiritual. Man, I'm stepping on some toes, y'all. I know. Are you encouraged yet? Are you, are you encouraged? <laughs> I, I, I know this is tough, y'all. I, I mean, I, I just, uh, I didn't pick this. I, I'm pretty sure that um, this, is, this is tough stuff. But here we go. We're almost done. The message to Philadelphia. It just gets better. Not really. No, 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 uh, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So a test of endurance. This church was going through a lot, like the other churches, but they were not compromising. And the thing that they were practicing that's right there in that verse, verse 10, is to endure patiently. Right? Long suffering. And nobody likes to do that, especially when this has been going on for a year or three years. Five years, and we don't get like uneasy when we're in situations that we can control. I want you to think about these are what they were going through was a situation that they could not control. That's when we need patience. If we could control it and fix it, we don't need patience. We can figure it out. But when we're stuck in a situation and we have we have talked to doctors and lawyers and people and we've prayed as much as we can pray and we've still got it, still facing it. I've heard it said that patience is the ability to idle your motor when you feel like stripping your gears. It's the ability to wait on God when everything in you wants to just run. John Maxwell says that the formula for patience is difficulties plus time times trust. Difficulties plus time times trust. And so I, th- I think the truth that we can pull from this church and from from this message is that patience pays. Patience pays. That if you're in a trial and you're going through something and you want to give up and you feel like giving in and it's just not getting better, maybe God has something greater on the other side of that. I just want to encourage you to wait on the Lord. To be patient. It's it's like you put a seed in the ground, right? And, and, And it takes time for that thing to develop. It takes time for that first sprout to come out of the ground. This is plant season, right? Farmers know this, that patience is part of the process. And so he was encouraging. This is one of the only churches where there was no, there was no um, correction because they were, they were handling it with patience. They were, they were enduring the trial. I mean, this is, I know this is so backwards from our, from our culture, but, but this is the way that God grows great people. He, he puts us in trials. We face tests. We go through things that we don't want to go through. But if we can have patience, I've heard if we can wait in faith. There's waiting in a frenzy, right? I'm beating the door down. I'm mad. I'm a, I mean, but there's waiting in faith. There's something powerful that happens when we can do that. And there's people in this room that are doing that right now. There are people in this room that have diagnoses over their life and that they don't want and they're walking through it and they they wish that that God would heal them and we've prayed for healing. I mean, you've probably been there before. But patience. Waiting on God. Now here's the last one. Message of trust. The church of Laodicean church. I know your deeds. You're neither cold or hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm you're neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need anything. But you don't realize you're wretched, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and you're naked.
1: Now you're really encouraged,
0: aren't you? So this church, which I think if there's any church that identifies the most with the 21st century church, it's probably this church. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of wealth. They had a lot of stuff. They had big buildings. They basically, in their minds, they had everything that they needed. But I want you to see what Jesus does. He doesn't correct them for having money. He said, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of stuff. There's nothing wrong with having Well, I mean, I'm finding in, like you really can't be a blessing to somebody if you don't have anything to give. And so God blesses us with more. Why? Well, what's the more for? So we can bless our community. We can bless the people in our lives. But this is the warning. The warning didn't come from having the stuff. The warning came because they were trusting in money. And maybe that's why our forefathers put that on every single piece of currency that we have in God we trust because there tends to be a gravitational pull the more money we get, the more stuff we get the more we tend to trust it that it's going to get us out of trouble or it's going to solve our problems and people that have a lot of money know that that ain't true (laughs) and this church started to drift because they started trusting in their wealth and in their riches and they got off track so what's the truth here? I think the truth here is don't trust in riches but trust in the God who richly provides because money comes and goes. It's currency. That's what it means. It flows. It's meant to do that. It, Proverbs says that money will, will grow wings and fly away from you if you're not careful. So don't trust in money. If you have a lot of money, great, God bless you. If you don't, that's fine. Either way, the principle is don't, put your, don't wrap your heart up in it But there was one thing. If you did, if you did a little bit of homework last week, if you read the first couple of chapters, you'll notice there was one thing that Jesus says to every church. He gives these seven commendations, corrections, and counsels. But at the end of every message, he says one thing. I want to read it to you because I think it's the most important of all those truths. You may not be going through a trial right now. You may not be in the test of patience or endurance or suffering. You may not be in any of those tests right now. But there was one ultimate truth that I think is the solution. That it's the answer to whatever what we're facing in this life. He says it seven times. Whoever has ears, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Now remember, this letter was passed to all seven churches, so they all got to see their dirty laundry, right? Everybody knows what's going on in all the churches. And I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you have ears, listen to your pastor. (laughs) He doesn't say that. I wish he did, you know, no, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No. If you have ears, listen to the elders. If you have ears, listen to the law. Uh-uh. He says, he that I, if, you, if you really want to know what's going on, he says, you got to put listening ahead of looking. He's, he's training them to listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. That is the most important thing that I believe we can do as believers in the 21st century right now. Church is awesome. I'm glad that you're here. Reading your Bible, you need to do that. I think the more of the Bible we read, the more of God's voice we'll hear. But my prayer when you come here is not that you leave with something I said, but you would leave with something that he said. And from some point, from the the door handle of your car to to, to the door handle of this church, maybe it's in the pew, or maybe it's when you leave and you're on the beach sitting, thinking about today, that you hear that still, small voice. And that God says to you what you need to hear and gives you that manna from heaven, right? That, that, that bread of life, that, that man can't live on bread alone. But every word. And so he's, he's, he's encouraging these churches, he's correcting them, but the big truth that I hope we all leave with today is that we never graduate from listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. No matter what we do or what you lead or what God has called you to do, you're gonna be able to do that through the power and strength of listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's so important right now because if the book of Revelation tells us anything, it tells us that there's more happening in this world than what meets the eye. It shows us that, that you know it's in symbolism and there's all these symbols and there's, there's the lampstand and there's these seven stars in the hands of Jesus. And then if you, if you read the rest of, of Revelation, there's all kinds of stuff going on. But it tells us, it reminds us that there's more than, than meets the eye. You can't trust what you just see. That you've got to put listening ahead of looking. And even when life looks like it's a mess god can speak something great into your heart and he can fix it all in a moment but we have to listen we have to listen and this is what i want us to do that's how i want us to close i want you just to bow your head close your eyes and and lord we're we're listening god we thank you for these thank you for your word we thank you for these seven tests and seven truths lord we thank you that we can learn from these churches we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from their trials. We can learn from what they went through and apply it in our life. But in this moment now, God, we just we just ask for you to speak to us. Why don't you just make that your prayer? Holy Spirit, what do you wanna to say to me? What do you wanna to say to me? It could be keep going. Maybe something like "keep the faith." I know that you've been going through hell, and you feel like you're alone, but I'm with you. It may be you've been carrying some shame around from some mistakes that you made in the past, and I want you to give them to me. It may just be three words: "I, I, I love you." I, I don't, I don't know, but Holy Spirit, we know that you're speaking. We know that you're speaking all the time. And so Lord, we just take this moment right now to to listen. God, help us to stay on the straight and narrow. Lord, help us to stay faithful. You see every struggle and every trial of every person in this room. You see what they've been through and what they're facing even now. Praying for family members that maybe have fallen away. Praying for someone in their life that they wish was closer to them, but they're not right now. You see, every tear, you remind us of that in the book of Revelation, that you haven't wasted one of them, that you're saving them in a vial. I want you to hear that. Every tear that you've cried, it's precious to God. He sees it. He knows about it. And he said, in that right moment, you're going to pour those tears out. So, Lord, we thank you so much. When we ask, God, that, that you would just give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Lord, help us to tune our ear to the voice of the Holy Spirit every day, to be led by him. God, we just thank you so much. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said amen.